everyone. This is Matt. And I'm Kyle. And we're the Casual Tutors. Today we're going to be touching on kind of the same subject we've been scraping against the past couple of weeks here, but a little bit different flavor. And that is kind of how Wizards of the Coast pushes their latest and greatest set with chase cards, cool art, stuff like that. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna go over a couple of different things that they they do to push sets. Some things which I I don't mind. I actually think are good ideas and actually add flavor to the game. And some things which are yeah, kind of sketchy business practices when you really break it down. Before we get too far into it, we want to take time, do a little bit of housekeeping, talk about you know our Facebook, Instagram, all those stuff. We appreciate if you guys follow us, post on our pages, send us DMs. We love interacting with everyone. We do have a Discord. I'm fairly certain it's functional if we could get people in there trying it that'd be great i love troubleshooting it and you know chatting with you guys yeah and if you have any issues whatsoever just reach out to matt or i jumping right in everyone knows that wizards of the coast and hasbro by extension are a business first and foremost a lot of employees like mark rosewater gavin Verhey, they obviously are very passionate about the game but it's their job to create cards that really push sales for the company and help stay afloat, allows them to keep going on in the future with new product. That is something that we understand is it is a business. So they're going to do things that push for the sets to sell. They want to make profits. They want to sell these sets. And I think we've seen in the past, I mean, I think we've seen many times in not just recent years, but much further back in the past, certain things that work and certain things that don't work. And so we're going to kind of break that down, I guess. Yeah, right off the bat, we're going to talk about chase cards. Those are the big hitters, reprints, just spicy, obviously powerful cards that they announce or spoil whenever they do spoiler season. Uh, we're kind of right in the middle of a suitor spoiler season right now with Dominaria Remastered. That set is definitely chaser packed. Chase cards aren't always a bad thing because I think there are some sets that they make sense in. For example, when you print doubling season in double master, that makes sense, right? That's still a chase card, but it's also flavorful. When you, I, I'm trying to think of a good example, when you throw in a whole stack of chase cards, though, into like Double Masters 2022 and then slap a super expensive price tag on it, and it, it's kind of a, an offset that, it's not a limited run, right? It is a limited run. It is so, a limited run. Yeah, Double Masters was a master set, which every master set is limited. What we're currently in right now, Dominaria Remastered Season, it is also a limited print run. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Spoil, uh, chase cards aren't bad. Obviously, we're big fans of reprints because they increase accessibility into every format. And that's a very good thing. Where chase cards kind of, you know, deteriorate from that value is where we get these sets that are jack-packed full of bombs. And, you know, obviously everyone and their mother is going to be out buying boxes for these chase cards. It creates supply issues. There's a huge demand. There's only supply issues because they're limited run sets. So it's, it's really Wizards of the Coast creating artificial scarcity. Artificial scarcity is a big scary word. Obviously, no one wants to accuse their favorite company or genre of games or anything like that of it. But, you know, it's fairly obvious that they're using mechanisms well within their own control to drive sales and push, you know, different cards, whatever it may be. It's definitely a catch-22 for us as a player. Like I said, we love the reprints. I love being able to play Force of Will. I love people being able to play Force of Will against me, counter spell argument aside. It, it's great to see formats with these because ultimately it just means you know, a healthier format in the end. So I'm going to, I'm going to pivot a little bit in the same subgenre of this. I think there's, there are ways to do this and ways not to do this. I'm a personal fan of the pseudo lottery cards they did. Um, now the, the lottery cards were cool. The masterpieces, those were super cool, but I'm more of a fan of like the mystical archives from Strixhaven. That was a place where they were able to, it's not a limited run set. It, they're able to print these. You're getting a mystical archive in every single set booster pack. And they're able to reprint things like Teferi's Protection or... Force of Will. Any of the, the yeah. Demonic Tutors. Demonic Tutors. That's the other one I was thinking of. But they're they're able to, to print these chase cards in these... You can't even call them lottery packs, really, because there's a a mystical archive and every Guaranteed set booster, pool. but they, and they've been doing that kind of off and on, not in every set, but they, uh, we just got them in brother's war. 
But that's a good way to do it. That's, that's you're giving chase cards, you're giving an incentive to buy this product without creating artificial scarcity. I think it's also the better venue for Watsu to go down because kind of like Kyle said, it's not as feel bad. You're always getting these archives or these retro frame artifact cards. Obviously, they're not as packed full as bombs as a master set or a remastered set, but it also at the same time allows Wizards of the Coast to spread out these cards. And we talked about card equity in a previous episode. So go back and you know give that a listen in this case you know it definitely plays to their advantage where they're coming out and they have the possibility of stretching sets that might not be as popular you know the summer sets tend to be a little bit cooler than the winter sets, stuff like that seating them kind of like we saw with Strixhaven which I guess was a summer set yeah May May so seating those with things like demonic tutors and cool art printings and stuff like that I think is a very viable way for wizards to do this I still what year and a half later was looking at maybe picking up some older collector uh, booster boxes and was looking at Strixhaven seriously considering it because those mystical archives are incredible. Strixhaven as a whole was a really good set. I was really happy with Strixhaven. But just those mystical archives, that I, I believe that was the first time that they had done that sort of lottery card-esque thing. And they'd done a really good job with it. The reprints were really good. All the way down to we had Japanese art and our regular mystical archives. We had things that were very playable that weren't expensive, like Dark Ritual and Swords to Plowshares, which is just reprinting commander staples that are good but not expensive, which is also another thing that they should be doing in these sets. We do see it a little bit. Like we got, and I'm not going to say this, this isn't cheap. It's not in the same vein, but it's not nearly as expensive. And we got like Oracle of Moldiah in the last Double Masters, which is a great card. And it's sitting, I think now it's sitting under the $10 mark because of that reprint, which is awesome. You know, it's obviously not a Ragavan, but it's still, it's nice to see that they're seeing these lower end, but still expensive commander staples and printing those as well, or even not expensive staples. And bringing up those Japanese Strixhaven cards, I kind of think we got to be the dummy that playtested this inadvertently because War of the Spark Japanese booster packs had the waifu Planeswalkers and, you know, Dreadhorde General, all these chase cards. Dreadhorde General is still an insane price for the Japanese art. But we got a little bit smattering there where you had to buy Japanese booster boxes exclusively or packs, I guess. But And then full-on Strixhaven where we got these cool alternate arts in the Japanese and all that stuff. So Only in collector boosters. Only in collector boosters for the Japanese, yep. But we, we got like the small smattering in War of the Spark and then full-fledged in Strixhaven. Kind of along those same lines, I would definitely call this more long, closer to lottery than seeding like Strixhaven, but is the list. You know, one in four set boosters, it's a curated list. I definitely think what they did in Nuka Penna was the way to do it, where it was exclusively rares and mythics. That's, that's definitely the feel-good way. I've gotten really lucky with my list pools, and I'm really happy about that. But when you open up, some random 15-year-old common that doesn't see play in any format. That's definitely feel bad. Seeing a rare or mythic, even, and, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, you know, our, our goblin brains that love this game, but seeing we that- gold. We love gold. <laughs> seeing that that gold and that orange of the mythic, it just, it, it sparks a little joy, especially with some of these list cards that you might not know. It doesn't matter if you're pulling something expensive. You're like, oh, I got this cool random rare I've never heard of. Yeah, I love it. Especially they seem to put big bombing dinosaurs in all the time, like Galta and stuff like that. And, you know, they're probably just going to sit in a box for me, but pulling it is, you know, it, it is that feel good that you're talking about. You know, there is value in commons and uncommons, but like I said, Streets of New Capenna really did it right. Even if they decrease the chance of pulling a card to like one in five packs instead of one in four, but they limit it to mythic and rares, I think be, you know, a good direction for them to go in and definitely would help sell product. I know people that bought set boosters for New Capenna exclusively because because the list was more limited. And that's a good point too. I didn't even think about that because Nuka Pennant did not have like a, we're going to, we got to come up with a name for what these are called. The lottery-esque cards like they did with the archives. I, I don't know what they're called. We got to look into that. Just special treatment. Special treatment cards. The non-standard special treatment cards. Nuka Pennant didn't do that. So New Capenna had their showcases, they had their alternate arts, but really, like, there wasn't a whole lot of crazy stuff from New Capenna. No, and it's kind of getting to the point where, as we're advocating for all these pseudo lottery cards and alternate cha or chase cards and stuff like that, there is definitely some feeling of bloat there. Like, I don't need an extended fart, extended art, <laughs> extended 
showcase frames. I don't necessarily need all these different types. They're cool without a doubt, but I think picking and choosing isn't necessarily a wrong thing for Wizards to do. Like, have a showcase, have an extended art for more cards in the set, and maybe not the special edition non-standard cards. But I think for standard sets, do showcase. Do just showcase. There's no reason to do full arts. Do just showcase. And only showcase, I would even say just rare mythics. Because there's so many, like, uncommon showcases I have from New Capenna. Rare mythics and spicy uncommon reprints. I could see that. I could see that. But, like, there's so many useless showcases I have that are going to sit in a box. They look pretty, but they're never going to get used. And then what you do is the Masters sets do the full art, and I even wouldn't mind seeing us go back to double Masters where the full art's only your box topper. I really like the bit of excitement, especially in double Masters where you had two box toppers. That bit of excitement where you, like, were opening that, and you are going to see what did I get in full art? Is it going to be foil? Like, is it, you know, is it a force of will? Did I get that full art force, force of will? It doesn't feel like it's as exciting when you know you could just open a full art. I agree if they're doing something like a box topper or something, especially in these ultra expensive premium sets where at a minimum you're spending $250 for a regular draft box. Making those feel super special is a win. I also think master sets is a perfect venue for wizards to just go absolutely nuts. Alternate art showcases, extended arts, another alternate art, you know, different types of foiling. You know, we go, if we get another, you know, time shifted type, card frame, stuffing like that. They, they do. They're called collector boosters. <laughs> but even those only have, you know, maybe one more additional type than what the normal set booster of Master Sets is. I mean, like, so Master Sets' true value is in the reprints. Right. So they should just reprint a card in as many different and exciting frames and shit as they can. I will say, even if they did do box toppers like they like they used to, and they did only like the full art treatment and box toppers, do it kind of like a, almost like a have collector's booster still, but your collector's boosters could be all these crazy arts. It could be full arts. It could be foils. You could have all the spicy picks from the collector's boosters because they're not going to stop doing that. Like, like a little coming to terms, you know, they're not going to stop doing collector's boosters. Well, even what we see right now in Brothers War collector boosters is that we're getting numbered exclusive cards from that set where they're unique up to, I think they're all up to 500. Yeah. But even then, you know, you got the retro frame, you got the regular print, you got the showcase print, all can be up to 500. So there's a lot of variability there. Making those your box toppers, giving everybody a little taste of that exclusivity pie. I actually think, I think all of the numbered ones are retro frame foils. There, there are some variety of printings. There's a Reddit post out there where someone did the math on the type of a card that is numbered, and it definitely exceeded 500. No, no, no. I, I get that. I get that. I just, I'm not exactly sure what it, how it works out to be. Throw all that cool stuff in a collector's booster. Give more incentive to buy collector's boosters, because you're not going to stop doing them. There are a lot of people, what you may have heard of in the magic world is a whale, people who have disposable income to spend on these products. Thank God for whales, because they're the ones that are driving all this diversity and, you know, kind of innovative stuff that they are doing. But bring back box toppers and maybe do the box toppers in a style of, if it's not full art, maybe do it in a style of a card that can only be cracked from a collector's booster or a box topper. You know, even spicier, give this perception of a power shift to the LGS. Make it the buy a box is a box topper. Yeah, yeah. Make it a an unknown. Yeah. It's just a pack that you buy a box from your LGS, you get. Obviously, some LGSs aren't allocated as much, and there's different situations where they get additional box toppers than what they get beyond product. And that still continues on where they're incentivizing their Friday night magics, their game days, with these spicy potential box toppers that are, you know, random draw. It would even work better than the current box toppers that we're getting because the current ones are known cards, and it's all the same cards. So it's driving price down on those. Also, it seems like there's randomly, I don't know, packaging issues where these are arriving bent in the boxes. And I, I mean, just working with RLGS, I have much better feelings about how the promos arrive than what I see some of the cards that come out of these boxes. So just condition wise, it might be a better thing for them. The other thing you could do is I just thought of this while you're saying that they do collector's boosters samples that come in the commander pre-cons, even something like that would be neat to see as like a box topper. So instead of just one card, maybe it's three cards. Maybe it's an uncommon, a rare, and a special art. Well, which 
Take a lesson for the drug dealers, kid. First hit's free. Exactly. And that's exactly why they put him in the pre-cons. So it might be a it might be a cool thing to kind of throw out into other products. And that's I get it. I don't want to give Wizards of the Coast too much money. I'm not petitioning for them to make more money. Everyone definitely goes through cycles where they do do that. But the thing is, is we're already giving them our money, right? We love this game. We're playing this game. We're putting a lot of money into this game. I know there's probably a decent percentage of the player base that are like Matt and I. <laughs> so I know we put a lot of money into the game. So if we could have yeah, some freebies here and there, if we could have a little player love, a little more player love, I think that that might be in Watsi's best interest, especially with the current environment. Yeah, so that's kind of Kyle's and I thoughts and ideas about the pseudo chase cards, alternate printing, stuff that's exclusive in a variety of different products. Definitely, you know, not to sit out here and chill a little bit, but, you know, let us what you th- know what you think about this subject hit us up on facebook in the discord and if you got an idea or kyle and i are just totally going the opposite direction than you you think it needs to be go back to the traditional roots of magic where there's a foil and a regular printer even further back where there's no foils at all whatever it is you know let us know we want to have this discussion with you while we're talking about different exclusive cards and packs we're kind of going to get to the meat and potatoes that we wanted to cover today everyone knows kyle and i are by large commander players so this one kind of hits home for us Starting with Innistrad Midnight Hunt, in set and collector boosters, there's been a slot that has the possibility of containing a commander exclusive card. Initial thoughts on that? You know, commander exclusive? Oh, it's just a card from the pre-con. Well, yes, but also there are seven to eight cards that Wizards has created outside of these commander pre-cons that also fit into these slots. It's crazy. I personally... I'm going to say, I did not like this until I learned more about it. I did not realize there were so many of these cards. That is the only thing that I did not like. Because I thought it was like one card per, and I was like, oh, what are the odds of getting this? Finding out that there are like eight of these cards per set, I realized that I have pulled a lot of these cards. So it's not as rare as I thought it was because there's eight, like seven or eight of them. The one thing I will say, though, is it's a little confusing that they have the same set symbol as the Commander Precon cards, and they're numbered as part of those sets, correct? They're usually, they'll fall after, so they'll be like in the 80s or 90s when there's, I mean, this changes per Commander Precon where the number of unique cards printed for that is different, but... You know, they're usually at the end of that numbering sequence. And Kyle kind of hit the nail on the head. These cards aren't exactly hard to get. Like I said, they're in set and commander boosters. And set boosters seem to be the best way to purchase magic cards if you're going to go the booster pack route. If you enjoy cracking packs, and I know a lot of us do, buy set boosters. If you enjoy playing limited, buy draft boosters. Don't just open draft boosters. It's not worth it. If you don't know these cards exist, or you don't know the extent of these cards, or something like that... You're going to go in, you're going to be cracking these and be like, oh, that's a sweet rare. That's a sweet mythic. Maybe not applicable to what I have. I'm just going to shove it in a box. When in reality, you open kind of a rare quote unquote card that isn't prevalent in the set itself. And they look like they belong in the set. I mean, they all fit the theme of the set as well as I know that I personally don't, I like I shuffle through these cards quick. I don't look at set symbols. I'm not paying attention to that because I'm opening this pack. And unless I can clearly tell it's a list card, I'm going to just think it's in the same set. There, there are eight because I thought I found another one that I didn't include in our list. So each set has eight unique commander cards that aren't available in the precons. And, you know, we're six sets deep into Wizards doing this. So it's 48 cards that we're going to kind of skim through real quick. There, There's definitely some very spicy hits here that we want to mention. There's also kind of this prevalent where they're including cycles into this set of cards, which I think is immensely cool. I think when Wizards cycles cards based on color, where they're all doing a similar theme-based color identity thing is kind of a flavor win in general and i definitely like it because you play a five color deck if you get a full cycle of cards in there that they're all in this case gonna be you know visions of something or whatever it is it's, it's definitely a flavor win no one can knock you on that i don't know a whole lot about these cycles necessarily but cycles seem to be good at least in the deck they belong in there there's always a deck for them this whole thing started with midnight hunt in midnight hunt again Eight cards in this. This is where we get that vision cycle. So it's visions of glory, ruin, dread, duplicity, and dominance. The key one to note there is visions of dominance. 
all these visions have flashback, which is kind of the, the common trend among this cycle. But visions of dominance in particular, you put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature, then you double the number of plus one counters on that creature. Already think about six different strategies that that's very spicy in. We also get things like we get a new curse, Curse of Obsession, which not the most notable card in the world. It lets you, it's cursed player draw two cards on their upkeep and stuff like that. Then they have to discard their entire hand on their end step. Like I said, I mean, a lot of these commander specific cards that are not in the pre-cons, there's a deck out there for them. Even if it's not necessarily the curses deck, I know some pretty mean discard decks that might like that. Speaking of curses, probably the spiciest commander card that they included in this set of eight cards is Lind, Cheerful Tormentor. She is the curse commander. She has death touch, and whenever a curse goes to the graveyard, you return that curse to the battlefield attached to you. And then the beginning of your upkeep, you are able to move that curse to one of your opponents. And if you do, you draw two cards. Yep. And, you know, just kind of some rules here. If you are tormenting someone too cheerfully with Lind and they scoop, all those curses that are attached to them, they do go to your graveyard, but they also trigger that first line of text where you're going to get them equipped to you and then you're going to just spread the love again. That's the cool thing about this is we're not just getting these cycles. We're not just getting neat niche cards. We're getting a lot of named legendary creatures in these commander-specific cards. Yeah, commanders for either tribes or themes that necessarily did not have the support pre these cards, which is great. Like, share the love. Like, diversity in our format is what makes commander better than every other format. Fight me. We should have an episode where we... Kyle will fight me. I will. Um, We should have an episode where we discuss... Certain theme commanders versus other certain theme commanders, because I'm curious as how curses. I'm curious as how good curses is without it being in Mardu. I mean, curses isn't the most. Like speaking of diversity, there's not a ton of curses out there. There's more that really do nothing, especially in Commander. Curses is a very single player orientated thing. I think Lynn gets around a lot of that by allowing you to share the love, like I said, but. It's not something you're going to see every day. Like, I have I've never seen a Lind deck. I own Lind. I thought about it, but... I've never seen a Lind deck. I have seen the three mana, just, just Mardu, commander that was printed semi-recently. I've seen them, but I haven't... I think that might be the only Curses deck I've ever even seen, to be honest. The remaining card in the set after we get through all the visions, the curse, and Lind is Avison's Memorial. It's 100% a bomb. It doesn't take any explaining. It is a Legendary's Matters card and artifact, indestructible. Other Legendaries you control are indestructible. And I think especially since we've seen two new commander pre-cons lately that really care about legendaries to some extent. It's definitely has a place. I don't think it's a stretch to put this in many different commander decks. Well, it's nice because it's $5 as opposed to getting Avison herself, which is like, what, $65? A lot. Obviously, after Midnight Hunt, we get the joyous set that is Crimson Vow. Obviously, not the powerhouse set that Innistrad Original used to be. Definitely a flavor win, I think, in general. But these eight cards, there, there's one real notable card that I want to include that isn't on the list I gave Kyle because this is all me. But it's Wedding Ring. And when it enters the battlefield, you create a copy of Wedding Ring and you give it you give it to one target opponent. Whenever whoever controls a copy of Wedding Ring, whenever they draw a card, whoever else has a Wedding Ring draws a card. And same thing for life gain. Whoever has Wedding Ring gains life. Other people with Wedding Rings gain life. And face value, it's you and one other person. It's not hard to copy artifacts. It's hilarious to me. It, it was one of a couple of cards that Matt and I were initially talking about with these commander-specific cards, and he forgets to put it in the list. It's because it's mine. But I will say, I think Crimson Vow has probably the most underwhelming list of these commander-specific cards. Even then, though, like, underwhelming of the spiciest of the spice, because it seems like all these hidden commander cards are usually pretty good. So we get... Really just one legendary, I think only one creature is in contention for being your commander. And that's going to be Umbra's Fear Manifest. It's a 1-1 legendary nightmare horror. 
She gets plus one, plus one for each card your opponents own in exile. And whenever Umbris or another Nightmare or Horror enters the battlefield under your control, target opponent exiles cards from the top of their library until they exile a land card. Like Mill City, for one. Mill, they're never getting back because it's going to exile. And Mill, that's making my commander huge. Right, but I think it's... I think it's also might be underwhelming because, well, maybe not. Maybe it's more exciting because we got a horror commander in that set. Well, we have Captain N-Word, too. That was the pre-con. Right. Can't, can't pronounce that. Not even going to attempt it. But, and I mean, that might be, now that I'm looking forward a little bit, that might be kind of a bit of a theme that there are some of these commander pre-con staples that would go into these pre-cons but aren't in the set. I'm sorry, I said into the set that aren't going into the that aren't coming in the precons is what I meant. And so I think Umbrus is a bit of a bait in the switch. I already talked about mill. Like obviously it's power you're milling your opponents into exile. So it doesn't matter what strategy they're doing, even if they're graveyard strategies, like immediate hate. But I think Umbrus is a sleeper Voltron commander. Like, obviously, you're playing horrors and nightmares to mill your opponents, but every time they mill, you're making your commander bigger, and you're going to be invested in protecting your commander, and some of the best ways to protect it is with equipment and auras. There's also the part of it where you're playing all these different threats, and she's not going to start huge, but you're going to get there, and I'm going to tell you why. It's because commander players are incredibly greedy. Kyle's number one advice to me when I turn to him for deck out is cut lands. And horrible advice, rarely take it, but... Build better decks, you'll need less lands. Ignore Kyle. Commander, like, commander players are like Kyle. They're all greedy, and realistically, a 36 land-based commander deck is probably the average, you know, plus or minus one or two. You, you see people on Reddit and different forums where they math out how many lands we should be playing to consistently get two to three lands in our starting hand, and it's in the 40s, regardless. 32. Just mulligan until you get three. And then I'm going to be playing my Umbrus deck because you're never going to hit that land and I'm going to exile a shit ton of your cards. Anyways, rabbit hole going on right here. A couple other honorable mentions in the Crimson Val Commander cards is going to be Mirage Phalanx, which it has Soul Bond, which is the, the Val cycle that's going on. There's five different cards, one for each color that has Soul Bond on it. But this is a human soldier 4-4. Four, four. As long as Mirage Phalanx is pair bond with another creature, each of those creatures has, at the beginning of combat on your turn, create a token that's a copy of this creature, except it has haste and it loses Soul Bound. Exile it at the end of the turn. Who doesn't love copying the their bombs? Combat. That's important. It's Sorry, exile end it of at combat. the end of combat. And what's even more important about that, you do have priority at the end of combat to do any kind of shenanigans you want. If you're playing something that ends the turn, like Sundial of the Infinite or something like that, you end the turn, you keep the tokens because you never get that trigger. Actually, no, I'm wrong. I'm 100% wrong. That trigger still goes on the stack. So Sundial of the Infinite does not work with this card. But you have your opportunity to sacrifice the creatures to gain value, whether you're playing some kind of altar or something along those lines. In general, upfront copying your best creature because it's soul bonded with this card is insane. One that kind of shocked me when I was making this list, because I have a werewolf, Tolvar commander, like total basic, Hollow Henge Overlord, 4-4 flash, beginning of your upkeep, each creature you control, that's a wolf or werewolf, create a 2-2 wolf creature token. I've got a buddy who's got a werewolf deck, and I want to find one of these, or find it in my collection and give it to him. This is really cool. This is a card that I didn't know exists, which is kind of interesting about these commander-specific cards, is they're not like in the main set, so it's really easy to miss them. And this is a really cool card. So werewolf decks, as everyone I'm sure is well aware, is your your basic gruel stompy deck at heart. You're you're playing creatures that do cool shit when it changes from day to night, or they transform, or wherever you're pulling your werewolf genre from the era of magic. But going wide is something that they don't do super easy, and this is a card that just blatantly does it for nothing. Immediate staple. Obviously, we talked about soul bond being the mechanic. There's a soul bond and angel. It's definitely something to check out. I'll I'll share this list of commander cards on. On some of our socials so you could take a look at them you're not going to want to miss out moving on to the next set we are moving into streets or no kamigawa neon dynasty how can i forget this one's a little strange because it's cycle is new miogens which i think is really cool i had an okagachi spirits deck that was brutal that just basically played all original kamigawa cards i'm gonna cut kyle off miogens are cool I agree. Everyone just, there's two cards people care about. There's, I think there's three. 
I think there's three cards that everyone cares about. There's two cards I really care about. So go Shintai of Life's Origins, because Shrines is insane. That deck I have for Shrines literally just goes off with, you know, the freaking fart and a sneeze. There's two cards that are good, and there's three cards that everyone cares about. So important distinction, because that's... One of the cards everyone cares about obviously isn't good, but it's the bestest boy. Right, and Yoshimaru, and don't get me wrong, I'm not going to say not good, because he's a one-mana, one-one legendary commander with partner. So it, it opens up some opportunities there with the partner. He is hindered by being white, which is something that's rapidly changing. But, but he is partner. He is partner. So that gives him other color options. I don't know off the top of my head. He's a legendary matters. He gets counters every time a legendary yep. That's matters. the true hindrance for Yoshimaru. I don't know if there's any other partners that are really great pairing for that. No, Yoshimaru is often kind of a meme. Included for, you know, quote unquote, the inclusion of white. But like I said, it's just the pure fact that he's... He's the bestest boy. He's a cute puppy sitting on a golden throne where he belongs. And you know what? We had a one mana, one, one white legendary dog who was like the goodest of boy before Yoshimaru. And he had no text on him. Yeah. Literally just flavor text. Yoshimaru erased him from history. I'm not even going to try remembering his name. I'm going to let Kyle start talking about Myojins again. Okay. So... Myojins are cool because I believe they're good in spirits. I, I think that's where they go. They're a little too big. The old Myojins had the benefit of going into like the Jota decks because Jota made them only cost Wooberg. These I don't think are good enough. I think these have to go into Spirit Tribal as a flavor, and that's fine. They're probably, I, I don't want to say they're the worst of the cycles. I think for Kamigawa, they're one of the biggest flavor wins because Soul Bond's cool. Those Instance of Sorceries that we saw in Midnight Hunt are cool, but they don't necessarily play into... The, I guess Flashback is Innistrad's thing. But anyways, the Myojin like, directly fit into Kamigawa lore, which is cool. And, you know... Like I said, I'm posting this list on all of our socials, but for anybody that doesn't want to go digging, Myogens are all single color, so Wooberg, or, you know, white, red, black, green, and blue. There, there's one for each color. Right, that, that's the correct way of phrasing that. But every single one of them is eight mana. So three of whatever color they're in, and then five generic. And the old ones were pretty expensive, too. I don't know if they're quite... They, I think they're at least eight mana. And they all enter with something that was new for Kamigawa, and that was the indestructible counters. So they're all automatically modified creatures. One thing that I will say, I think that these Myojin would be significantly better if they entered with the same divinity counters that the old ones entered with. Because there's a lot of spirit... Not even spirit, but tribal synergies where you can add divinity counters back and things like that, that work that are already usually in the spirit tribal deck. In case just having a base 8-8 spirit wasn't good enough for you, that also had an indestructible counter on it if you cast it from your hand. The real value for Myogens can comes from an instant speed ability that's stapled onto them where you remove that indestructible counter and trigger some kind of ability. Immediately I'm looking at my Ogin of Towering Might because I have a mono greed deck that's extremely plus one plus one counters orientated. But you know, you remove that counter from Towering Might and you're putting eight one one counters among any number of target creatures you control and they gain trample. The problem is is when you look at the old Myojins, the Myojin of Life's Web, which was the green one from original Kamigawa, says remove the divinity counter, put any number of creatures from your hand onto the battlefield. Right. Obviously, they're not going to do that. But Wizards has learned lessons over the years. But Craterhoof Behemoth is a very real card in our format. And I'm not saying Towering Might is near the level of yeah, that. Craterhoof Behemoth is probably why <laughs> Life's Web is so good. Right. But, you know, one mana more than Craterhoof, you're... Instantly able to remove this indestructible counter and essentially overwhelm your team. You're putting counters, which are permanent, That's and trampling. Eight, eight on any number. I did misread that. I thought that was just eight distributed, but it's you could put eight on your entire board, right? Distribute eight plus one plus one counters among any number of target creatures. So it's eight counters that you could put on any number. So it is an eight per creature. Oh, okay. So it is how I thought it was read. So it is. So yeah, if you have four I creatures, don't think you it's could, that good. I mean... We're talking about, and not everyone's going to be able to afford Crater Hoof Behemoth, which, by the way, look at the secret layer Crater Hoof Behemoths, the one that was done for the kids' charity. Extremely affordable compared to where it used to be. But 
you know, it, it's just another one of these overrun effects. Okay, cycles are cool. Miochins are cool. Let's talk about what's probably the most played card in the Neon Dynasty. Ruthless Technomancer? Yes, Ruthless Technomancer. Treasures have been pushed and pushed and pushed, and everyone loves treasures. Yep. I dare you to go look at your commander decks and show me that you have none that have any kind of treasure in them. Just a brief reading on the card. It's three and a black for a human wizard. Technomancer enters the battlefield. You may sacrifice another creature you control, which in black uh, win. If you do, create any number, create a number of treasure tokens equal to that creature's power. That alone, you just left it at that. If there was no more text on this card, that would be a good card. But there's more. Two and a black, sacrifice X artifacts, return cre- target creature card with power X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. X can't be zero. Oh, uh, you can't get your Dryad Arbor. It's literally everything black wants to do on right. one card. I, it's sacrifice. It's a sacrifice? free sacrifice yeah. outlet. Not just sacrifice, free sacrifice. And recursion. It's really good. In fact, it might be up to this point one of the best of these style cards. It's less than $2. Jump on it. Because, like I said, these cards are only available in set and collect boosters. And then, you know, barring any future reprints, which they're full possibly going to do. Who knows? But... I know everyone at least probably has some kind of black and sacrificing a creature of black, regardless of what your main theme is, is something black always pays off for. At least pick up one or two copies because it's not going to be under $2 forever. That was the Spice of Kamigawa, kind of like the main set. There were a lot of upfront big bombs and then the real value came in the smaller creatures. But we're going to move on to Streets of New Capenna, which I feel as a set as a whole was rather <laughs> underappreciated. I felt it was a super healthy limited Environment. Definitely not the most powerful. So Streets of New Capenna, I feel like it's a super underappreciated set, especially in limited formats where it's 100% not near as powerful as Kamigawa was or, you know, kind of the idolized limited sets of our past. But I think it's consistent. I think it has cool archetypes and I feel like it made for very good limited gameplay. And when we're looking at constructed formats, you know, we got things like Facebreaker and stuff like that, that in Commander make a big splash because obviously everyone loves treasures and there's Facebreaker just shits out treasures. But even in Standard, you know, there's multiple cards from it that are very good. I will say, looking at this, I think it has the most number of interesting cards that are in these commander specific as well as playable cards it is also the first one out of the ones we've talked about here that does not have a cycle it makes up for that because it has a quite a few actually in my opinion very good playable commander cards one of which is a commander that i made and it is my treasure commander in jund and i'm just going to kick it right off with her it's vazzy key negotiator she's two in jund which is black red green for a legendary creature, human advisor, with haste, tapper, target opponent creates X treasure tokens, where X is the number of treasure tokens I created this turn. Whenever an opponent casts a spell or activates an ability, if mana from a treasure was used to cast act- or used to cast or activate it, put a 1-1 counter on target creature, then draw a card. Such an interesting deck. The way we might we might even do a little deck tech on her just because she's very interesting the way she's built. It's not your typical treasure deck. It's a ton of fun to to play and play against, in my opinion. So right off the bat, she's a treasure commander that does not make treasures, which might appear to be a, a major deficit for... Hey, she does make treasures. She makes treasures for other people. But that's all predicated on you making treasures first. Like I said, I, I love this deck. It was my mass land destruction deck because I wanted to tax people for using the treasures I was giving them. But in today's climate where everything makes a treasure, it seems like, including different cards like Ancient Copper Dragon and Old Nabo and all this stuff, which are well within Jun colors, make more than enough treasures for Vazi to you know help spread the love around with. And then the fact that a commander draws a card is all immediately a very good thing in my opinion and you know you give people treasures they're going to use them you're going to be putting one one counters you're going to be drawing these cards and no one really wants to kill vazi at least until they realize what is happening as we go through this i think one of the most notable cards in this set that i'm going to discuss is is benny brax It's a card that I have never seen in a deck, but should be in most white decks. Uh, Yes, I've never seen him. I I was actually looking for him for a while, and I could have just ordered him. Except now he's up to what? 
$15 on Card Kingdom. That's ridiculous. Yeah, $10 TCG. I would love to get a, a hold of him because he's good. He's really good. He has Convoke, which, first of all, Convoke is, is such an awesome mechanic. I think more cards should. He's a 3-2 for 3 and a white. And at the beginning of each end step, if you created a token this turn, draw a card. Easy. Token decks in white. doesn't matter if you're green, white, black, white, red, white. You make tokens. And just for everyone out there, Convoke is your creatures can help pay cast this spell. Each creature you tap while casting this spell pays for one generic or one mana of that creature's color. So if Benny's your commander... You'd never essentially have to worry about commander attacks. I, I, definitely Benny Brax is not something that should be a commander, but in the 99 of oh, your token. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, but, yeah. don't make him your commander. Put him in the 99. If you're feeling spicy, commander attacks is a thing of the past for you. As we move forward, we, we, are, we are putting away a lot of time here. I think we're going we're gonna to probably speed through some of the, the next couple of sets. I did want to talk about the... There are a couple other cards in this one I want to talk about. Tenuous Truce being a big one. Tenuous Truce is really good. It's one and a white for an enchantment aura. You enchant opponent. So it's like a curse, but not a curse. At the beginning of Enchanted Opponent's end step, you and that player each draw a card. And whenever you attack Enchanted Opponent or Planeswalker they control, or when they attack you or a Planeswalker you control, sacrifice Tenuous Truce. So you guys get the card draw, but it's also kind of like a Pillow 40 effect. Kind of. Yep. And I fully call that a curse because, I mean, if you're on that curse game, you're probably not playing something that's super defensible. So you piss somebody off and then you'd be like, hold on, hold on. Let's draw some cards, buddy. They're probably going to leave you alone, at least for a little bit. But you also play into their game plan by letting them draw cards. And the only other one I wanted to talk about in this set was Mary the Killing Quill. By the way, speaking of that, Matt, we are going to have this. Matt will be posting this list on all of our socials. So if you are interested in the other cards that we're going to skip over here moving forward, go ahead and take a look at that list. But Mary the Killing Quill is one a black black for a 3-2 legendary creature vampire assassin. Whenever a creature an opponent controls dies, exile it with a hit counter on it. And then assassins, mercenaries, and rogues you control have death touch. And whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, you may remove a hit counter from a card that player owns in exile. If you do, draw a card and create two treasure tokens. Solid. Another mono black rogue assassin commander that I think is well up there with every other one. It, it gives you benefits, but it's also also kind of tribal-esque and it gives you a place to put all those assassins mercenaries and rogues just to quickly name the other cards that we didn't are, gonna, are not really going to speak into there's boxing ring spiteful repossession swindler's scheme and threefold signal all of which are very good and definitely deserve more time than we're going to give them but definitely check out that list because if you don't already play them there's definitely decks out there that they play right into their theme of jumping into the next set we're kind of moving into the the, most, the freshest era of magic and that's going to be brothers war or sorry dominari united brothers war is next and this is another one where there's not really going to be a major theme or cycle of the cards but again very powerful cards in this set i'll start with my favorite from it it's going to be green sleeves morrow sorcerer it is three green green for a legendary elemental protection from planeswalker and wizards Green Sleeves, Mars Sorcerer's power and toughness are equal to the number of lands you control. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under my control, create a 3-3 green badger creature token. Immediate bomb in any landfall deck. Easy. Like, don't even need to think about it. This one's one that I don't know a lot of the, the cards in. I knew that the main ones that I knew about that I saw were Green Sleeves, Rosnacht, Erev Roga, and the Mana Rig. The Mana Rig... I don't think it's all that good. It's a cheap legendary artifact for decks that care about artifacts. And even that legendary theme where we've seen a couple different cards. This is true. I think the one that got the most love, the ones that saw the most love, were Green Sleeves and then the Air of Roga. For me, and we kind of talked about this on the, the other couple sets where they're introducing commanders for tribes or themes that don't necessarily get that love from pre-cons or whatever. It's going to be Baru Wormspeaker. Two green green legendary human druid. Worms you control get plus two, plus two and have trample worm tribal seven in a green tap it create a four four green worm creature token this ability costs x less to activate where x is the greatest power among worms you control a deck that sandworm convergence finally goes in I mean, I play it in a decade. It's very good, so fuck you, Kyle. But it, it's a tribe that it doesn't have the most support. I mean, there are worms out there, and we got a couple new ones here in Brothers War that are unfortunately in Gruel, I think. But it, it's cool for out there for those players that want to play worms. Moving on to the the next card in this kind of set that I want to talk about, which is the Era of Roga. I think the only thing that makes him not see as much play is the fact that we, not in recent years, I guess, but in Commander Legends, recent-esque, we got... 
Rograk, who's a zero mana with partner. And I think this guy at one red for a zero one, we would see this guy get more play if it wasn't for Rograk. This guy is cool though. He is a one red at zero one. He has battle cry. So whenever this creature attacks each other, attacking creature gets plus one plus oh until end of turn. He is heroic and his heroic is always going to be some effect happens whenever this creature is targeted by a spell. His is you create a zero one red kobold creature token named kobolds of care keep which is cool. We don't have a lot of creatures that create kobolds of care keep, and it has a special place in my heart because I used to run a, a fun prosh deck. Dirty prosh player. It is cool. This guy is definitely better than the last one mana commander we talked about, but he just cannot compete with his zero mana cousin, father? Descendant, or ancestor. Yes. he's an heir. We're going to move on to Brothers War. I just wanted to do a quick mention of something that we've talked about a lot of legendary creatures. Dominaria United did include an enchantment that shows a lot of love to sagas. And if this was a background or it could be a commander by itself, like some game-breaking rule where you could have an enchantment as your commander, it'd be great. And it's called Historian's Boon. It is three and a white for an enchantment. Whenever Historian's Boon or another non-token enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, you make a 1-1 white soldier creature token. Whenever the final chapter of a saga you control triggers, create a 4-4 white angel creature token with flying and vigilance. So like I said, it sound, like the text on the box would be an amazing saga commander. Thank God it's not because it's mono white and you'd be extremely limited on some of the best sagas out there. But I, I think this definitely adds a lot of support to Saga Tribal, so to speak. And the fact that it makes white soldier creatures is extremely relevant because Soldier Tribal was already well-established and it got an insane amount of love in Brothers War. This card is just, it's a flat win for a deck I've definitely never seen. And I'm sure there's someone out there crazy that has a Saga deck already, but big win. Brothers War, obviously our newest set, continues this trend of, you know, obviously what we're talking about is commander cards that aren't in commander product, but set and collector boosters. It also breaks away from some of the cycles that we saw in earlier sets, but it still maintains this kind of very high power level. And immediately right off the bat, there's a card that is included in this that is far more powerful than any other card that they've released in this like pseudo commander style. It's not even close. It is hands down the best of these cards ever printed. Yeah, and of course, I mean, you probably already know if you aren't living under a rock, but that card is Root Path Purifier. It is, whoop, definitely not Sardian Avenger. Sorry, let me pull up the right card here. It's three and a green for a three, four Elf Druid that just simply says lands you control and land cards in your library are basic. Bye-bye, Blood Moon. Hello, fetching for everything. Uh, yeah, hello, freaking cultivating for anything. Right, Prismatic Vista just skyrocketed. Insanely good card. It's blatantly obvious. We're not going to spend a ton of time on that. Some other very big hits is the Staff of Titania. It's a two-mana artifact. Obviously, with Titania's name stapled on it, we can expect something powerful forest-related. So two-mana for artifact equipment. Equip creature gets plus X, plus X, where X is the number of forests you control. So it's like a Blanchwood armor. And then whenever equip creature attacks, create a 1-1 green forest dryad land creature token. It creates dryad arbors. That's incredible. I mean, green definitely doesn't need help for ramp, but... It's equip three as well, by the way. Equip three. Yep. It, it's just opened so many different avenues or just builds on so many well-established avenues, I guess. It's insane. The next one I want to talk about leads itself into this as well. It's Titania, Nature's Force. And this one I was actually trying to tell Matt that I wanted to build a deck around, but I couldn't remember what her name was. And when I tried to describe her, she sounds a lot like the original Titania. She's four and a green green for a six, six legendary elemental. It says you may play forest from your graveyard. Awesome. Whenever a forest enters the battlefield under your control, create a 5-3 green elemental creature token. So you're getting more than two avenues and you're getting a 5-3 elemental. And then whenever an elemental you control dies, you may mill three cards, which is putting more forests into your graveyard. Awesome card. Six mana can seem a little scary for a commander, but in green, especially in mono green, non-issue. Last one I really want to go into detail with with you tonight is the Archimandrite. It's two in Jeskai, so a blue, red, white. For a legendary creature, human advisor, beginning of your upkeep, you gain X life, where X is the number of cards in your hand, minus four. Whenever you gain life, each advisor, artificer, and monk you control gains vigilance and gets plus X, plus zero to end a turn, where X is the amount of life you gained. And then you could tap three untapped 
advisors, artificers, and or monks you control and draw a card. And it's a zero five. That is awesome. I'm not going to lie. There was a lot of text on this one, it, so it I didn't bother reading it. a giant text box. But in essence, it's Jeskai Tribal. It's everything Jeskai from Tarkir wants to do. It's awesome. I did try to make a monk tribal deck back in the day, like right when I first got into Commander, and, and now I might. Well, and the fact that it isn't just monks, it's advisors, artificers, and monks, like, opens up a whole world. Right, which is good, because you can't build just monk tribal. That's what I found out. Yeah, not enough support, but between the three of them, especially advisors. Real quick, too, this is the only one that has a land in these. Oh, yeah, interesting. We will talk about that for sure. Urza's Workshop, which is a land. Urza's, which is an interesting uh, distinction for its land type. It says, tap, add, colorless. Or, Metalcraft... Tap add color list for each Urza's land you control. Activate only if you control three or more artifacts. This, Tron support. It's it's Tron support. It's really cool. It's great for artifact decks, Tron support, things like that. Really, the neatest thing about this is it's the first land we've gotten one of these commander set. You know, obviously there's more. Disciple of Carlos Nan. Sardian Avenger, which I incorrectly clicked on and mentioned. The Brothers War, which is a saga, which is also unique for this 48 cards that we've been going through. It's cool that it's named after the set. And it, it is moderately powerful. It's definitely not a bomb, but definitely, I guess, relevant with that saga enchantment, you know, assuming you're playing red in your color identity. You know, it kind of is bringing us close to the end. We just wanted to give you know, a big shout out to these cards because like we said, they're not well publicized. There's probably a ton of these cards you have that you probably didn't give a second thought to. And they kind of just talk about Wizards philosophy with chase cards, alternate printings, and, you know, how they push sets while also giving, you know, copious amounts of our input and suggestions and ideas. This was a lot more of, here are the good things that Wizards are doing. This was a lot more of, you guys should be paying attention to these awesome cards and these awesome different things that they're doing to push sets that are less sketchy business practices. And so we just kind of wanted to showcase that a little bit. Yep, get a little bit off that negativity train that we've been on the past couple of weeks. But, you know, kind of stay on theme, I guess. We're, we have this sub-season within our, all our episodes where we're really kind of bagging on the product train. What is Watsy doing right? What are they doing bad? Not that Matt and I are in any way, like, <laughs> like business geniuses. Yeah, in no position to actually give them advice. Again, just kind of to shill like we did earlier. We have every kind of social media you can imagine. We share our link tree in the description of this episode. You know, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, definitely the Discord, which I am super excited about. Like if you guys jump in there and have chats with me, send me messages at three in the morning, whatever, I'm going to be super stoked. So obviously we love any kind of input, good or bad. Start getting some of those deck suggestions or deck ideas in because Kyle and I are definitely looking to kind of expand our coverage of subjects. And one of those bigs we want to do, big things we want to do is is deck techs and suggestions that help you really become better at the deck building process and give some insight on how we work. We did receive a submission that we will be uh, working on. There will be a future episode. It might be a few out just to give us time to actually work and look at it. Just know that's coming. On the, the same topic of changing subjects and expanding kind of our view, we're also going to be doing some D&D and 40K tabletop discussions. I'm definitely excited. D&D is outside my realm, so I'm probably just going to be a fly on the wall while Kyle talks with a guest or two about it and get some witty punches in here or there. But then I also want to break Kyle into 40K, probably ease him into lore before we start talking the crazy world of tabletop gaming. Stuff to look forward to because it's, it's going to be off the wall. Can I just paint? You can't just paint. Not allowed. Band. Like I said, jump on those socials. We look forward to hearing from you guys. My name is Matt. And I'm Kyle. And we're the Casual Tutors. Thanks for listening.